0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Good morning, audience, and welcome to
2: NSPS Radio Hour. This is your host, Kurt Sumner. Thanks for joining us again today. We have a follow-up show today, actually, uh, from just a couple of weeks ago. I had some surveyors on who had made the trip to Ecuador and uh, told us about their adventures while they were down there. But part of the story wasn't just them going. It was uh, also related to some other work that was done uh, through Hemispheres. And Gavin Schrock and I had had a conversation about that. And by the way, Gavin's with me today. Welcome, Gavin. We also have Joe Noons and uh, Landon Urquhart from Hemispheres. And so, or it's Hemisphere, GNS, actually. want to make sure to get the name right. So welcome to all of you. Thanks for joining me.
3: Howdy.
2: Glad to have everybody on the show, and I think all all our voice levels are good. So um, I know, Gavin, you and I had talked about this uh, when you first mentioned the whole idea of doing a show, and I don't know if you guys listened to the show when we did it a couple of weeks ago, but uh, due to my confusion over what call-in number to send the guest, we had a little bit of a blip going into the show because I'd sent them the... I sent them the NSPS call-in number, not the radio station call-in number. So by the time we got going, we finally had a good show, but it was an adventure there for a while. So at least today we've started off on the right foot, so I guess that's that's good. So as a matter of fact, I don't know, Gavin, maybe you want to start off and and talk a little bit about uh, just remind our, our listeners about the last show and then
4: lead into what we're going to talk about today. Sure. the the uh, The background on this was um, <clears throat> a number of uh, a number of surveyors that uh, you know uh, frequent uh, uh, the um, RPLS uh, today forum. Uh, used to be called Surveyor Connect, you know, and beer uh, Beerleg. Uh, but um, John Miner down in Oregon, a noted surveyor in Oregon, uh, posted it. He had, he had read that book by Larry uh, Ferrero, the. Um, Measure of the Earth, and it was uh, it was about uh, what what a lot of people consider the beginning of modern geodesy. There was a French-Spanish expedition to Ecuador that uh, set out to measure three degrees of latitude to um, finally settle this big discussion that a uh, big argument in in the scientific world about the shape of the Earth. And it, it was, a, you know, an arduous trek and took 10 years, and, you know, it's an amazing read. But um, needless to say that, that the shape of the Earth being defined, you know, set up for geodesy, and everything since then is pretty much based on the shape of the Earth. I mean, modern GNSS relies on that uh, to get the precise positions. So um, in planning for a a trip, a bunch of surveyors wanted to go down there to visit some geodetic sites, um, some dedicated to that original mission, and visit the equator and do a little sightseeing. But the other thought was an educational uh, component, and I remember talking to you about that in Portland, that the NSPS could get involved in this is an educational outreach. Um, We were looking for... We were looking while they were down there to try to do some symbolic observations to show the contrast between, uh, you know, back in 1740 and um, today, you know, the, the state of, of uh, surveying and geodesy. And uh, we talked to, like, uh, Dave Doyle, retired NGS, and some NGS folks and different surveyors, and... During this, I, I happened to be visiting the Hemisphere GNSS headquarters down in Phoenix. Uh, I was writing an article about, um, uh, about them and got talking with the folks there about they had a new uh, PPP type service. And uh, we, we, we'd been thinking that PPP, which is precise point positioning, and I, I think Landon will be able to explain the science behind that in another segment. We thought that might, that's kind of symbolic um, of the state of the art now. So even though PPP has been around about 30 years, it's in a renaissance right now because of, um, you know, very good clock and orbits. So the notion was, theoretically, that three degrees of latitude could be measured with a person standing on each end of that that, uh, three degrees of latitude they measured. And in about twenty minutes, getting centimeter grade position, kind of recreating that that survey that took ten years in about twenty minutes. So uh, I approached Hemisphere because they, they were just telling me about their their uh, their own PPP service. There's a number of real time PPP services out there. Um, Hemisphere's Atlas uh, is um, launched in the past few years, and. Uh, They, you know, Hemisphere just jumped all over and said, "Yeah, we'll we'll send somebody down. We'll send equipment, and uh, you know, we can fire it up and it'll work." Well, the the expedition trying to find uh, a way to do both ends of the the three degrees it wasn't practical. So the thought was, why don't we why don't we have the crew shoot the equator? And of course, the challenge with that is, uh, as the previous show noted. A lot of the, the quote-unquote equator monuments down there were set prior to the advent of GPS through astronomical. And some of the most famous ones are a couple hundred meters off. But fortunately, uh, as John explained and the other folks and the guests in the show, uh, we got in touch with an archaeo astronomer down there. And uh, the team was able to go to a sundial and equator monument that he himself had constructed, the Qu- Quixoto. So this was a perfect spot um, where uh, the Quixoto folks also offered to allow us to put a commemorative monument down there, right on their, right on their equator mark. And the observations were going to be done there. Joe, Joe Nunes, Nunes from Hemisphere was going to travel down and do do the observations, and it, he'll, he'll explain how that went. Of course, I'm going to kick myself for the rest of my life for it dropping out two weeks before the expedition, but uh, the folks down there uh, chronicled things very well, and um, the observations were done. Uh, Joel explained that, but I, actually he provided the files to me afterwards, and I did some traditional baseline processing and, and validated everything that, uh, that he had shot there. So, yeah, it turned out to be something that the, the, the team could do while they were there with, you know, minimal impact, uh, low cost, and, and a very short amount of time. And it sort of uh, fulfilled um, the, uh, the notions that, that the team had uh, expectations for the expedition. And um, actually, it's just the feedback on it is a lot of people are asking now, what is PPP? And they don't realize that it's something that they have available as an alternative to traditional baseline, you know, RTK and baseline static. So uh, we, we we think we got, got the word out there, you know, educational-wise, about the original mission back in 1740 and then, um, you know, what what's available now. And also got to settle a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of controversy about where the actual equator is down there, so... Anyhow... I so, think that, that was it in a nutshell,
2: Kurt. So that, that was an interesting point you made right at the end there about settling where the equator actually is. I don't remember talking about that with the guys on the other show in terms of... Uh, it's... when you say where it is, you're talking about with regard to where it's demonstrated to be on that site, it, it, I, I guess the point I'm asking, question I'm asking, was was there a comparison of where it's shown to be there on the ground, and where the observations turned out to or, be, or or was this expedition simply to locate where their line is?
4: Well, uh, actually, uh, a mixture of, of of all of those. Um, on the on the at the Cuicatle site, the um, uh, the institute, you know, the um, the Ecuadorian version of the NGS and USGS the, the uh, Institute Geographic Militar. Um, they, when the Quixado, um sundial had been set oh years ago, I think it was two thousand six. Uh, they had set a mark there, and they, they validated where where the line was at Quitzado, and you know the other monuments around uh, Quito. Uh, the, the 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 most famous one there, you know, with the giant monuments, is a couple of hundred meters off, and then there's a whole bunch of little um, real equator ones, you know, commercial. So the Keatsado site, the, there's a there's a, a line across it, and a, a gnomon in the middle of the sundial that's right on the equator. But as John Hamilton, who was on the expedition, noted, he looked at the velocity. there that since 2006 that could be you know uh, 9-10 centimeters off the mark but where it is today is where uh, Joe and Hemisphere shot but taking the velocity into account it validated that line validated the um, the old mark from the IGM and and it was an interesting mix of geodesy and another thing that a lot of people aren't for, you know, familiar with when when surveyors when we go out and shoot something we assume that that's where we shot it but plate velocities you know think things are fluid well more out here on the west coast than over there but in virginia but um yeah it, it was a mixture of that it validated where that line was uh demonstrated the the effects of the velocity and uh applied a couple of, of uh, modern technologies to do that in a very short amount of time. Yeah, that's it's kind of interesting. We're a minute and a half away from break, but the, the, the
2: point you made about where where things are and where we locate things, that's, that's one of the things. I, I think since we did that show, um, somebody else was on the show, and we were talking about surveyors and their use of equipment and their confidence in their equipment and sometimes they're overconfidence in their equipment. <laughs> um, but I guess that's kind of always been true. I mean, surveyors have always, each of us, every time we set a, a line or a boundary point somewhere, we're certain that we absolutely have it correct, and whoever might disagree with us is absolutely incorrect. Uh, so I guess it's it makes sense that anybody who does this kind of work as well as the typical boundary kind of work would have. Uh, that kind of confidence in in their work. And and confidence in your work is is a good thing, but uh, I suppose understanding how that answer came to be is just as important. So maybe, I don't know if that's something we want to talk about later on, but obviously uh, we do have have issues sometimes with where we think things are. or where they appear to be to us. So, um, mm-hmm. Anyway, th- thanks for that explanation, and or that opening part. That was good information to have, Gavin, to set the tone for where we're going through the rest of the show, and to s- put the, the whole trip uh, into the context we're going to talk about today. It was a great conversation with the guys the other day. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that show, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it was a great experience talking to them about what they did and all the things that they were able to do while they were there. So, Today will be just a little bit different, uh, little bit different perspective on what the, the mission was. So let's go take that first break, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes.
1: Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
2: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz
4: Off with Lawyer Liz,
0: Wednesdays at 2. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, not Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstate.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back for our second segment today as
2: our follow-up show to the, the Ecuador adventure and more the more technical side of it. And as I mentioned earlier, we have Landon Urquhart with us who is with Hemispheres in Calgary. Um, and you're going to talk to us about the PPP, but uh, as as Gavin suggested, uh, give us a little bit of background about uh, your roots and how you got to, to where you are.
3: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kurt. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I went to, uh, University of New Brunswick where I did, uh, the geomatics engineering, uh, program there, and, uh, I kind of started out, um, you know, my, my long-term plans were, were to get into surveying. Um, I worked as, as a surveyor for, uh, for a few summers, um, while I was doing, uh, doing my undergraduate degree. Um, and then just as I was kind of finishing up, I had, a, an opportunity to, uh, work on a project related to uh, precise point positioning um, with uh, kind of a fellow grad student um, at the time. So basically what we had done, we had created a, an online positioning uh, service where users could send uh, files over the Internet, whether like in RINEX format, um, which is just one of these kind of generic um, post-processing data uh, formats that I'm sure a lot of surveyors are familiar with. Um, and they could submit this to this online service and, and then they would get back, um, you know, centimeter level accurate, uh, positioning results, um, within a few hours. And so that was basically, um, a service that was, um, using this precise point positioning technique. And, uh, so that's kind of how I originally got, got involved in it. Um, and then after doing my master's where I kind of continued working on that software, I, uh... I moved over to uh, to Calgary, Alberta, um, and began working at a company called Next Tech Navigation, which basically we focused on uh, a real time uh, point positioning service, uh, where we provided these orbit and clock corrections that Gavin had mentioned earlier, um, which are really a kind of core component to to this technique. Um, we provide them over an internet based service where users could. Um, you know, basically connect to an IP address and then these uh, corrections would be streamed over, over the Internet to, to an end user where they could uh, access them in real time. And then I guess uh, that went for a few years and eventually we were um, bought by a company called Unistrong, which, which also owns uh, Hemisphere GNSS, and we were eventually merged into, uh, into a single company and uh, that's kind of where we started developing Hemisphere's um, precise point positioning service, which is called Atlas. And uh, you know that's kind of how how I got brought into into this mix.
2: So a couple of questions um, on the whole idea of the precise point positioning and the service that's provided. Um, is there, and I'm asking this totally out of ignorance, because without being in practice for a long time, I'm not using the kind of things that everybody does now. You know, I'm I'm not quite as far back as as the instruments that were used in Egypt, but sometimes it feels <laughs> that way since, <laughs> since it's been a while. But is, the, is that type of service something that, that what I'll call everyday surveyors are using a lot now? I, I know the similar types of, of uh services uh, are provided by some, some uh, companies here in the U.S. too. And so I was just curious if with all the – everything that's going on in the world and the way equipment's evolving and data and processing's evolving, um, are, are a lot of servers still dependent on uh, getting the, the PPS solutions for their individual projects?
3: Yeah, so maybe, um, you know, before I get into that, maybe I can back up and, and kind of talk about, um, you know, how PPP was kind of originally started, um, like yeah, so. Gavin yeah. mentioned it's it's uh, you know it's really been around for almost thirty years now, which which is amazing because it seems like um, you know things progress so fast nowadays that you'd think by now we'd have all the uh, little bugs you know totally sorted out. But um, you know it's still certainly the case that we're still uh, you know there's still challenges that kind of limit um, you know who can really benefit from from PPP. Um, but, you know, originally it was, it was developed, um, you know, primarily for kind of geo, geodynamics, um, you know, studying, um, you know, plate motion, um, you know, earthquakes, um, you know, where you really had to um, rely on, on baselines that were, were extremely long, right? So, surveyors are, are probably most familiar with, um, you know, RTK techniques or static baseline processing, where typically you know, you're trying to minimize the distance from your base station to maybe 20, 30 kilometers, in some cases even five kilometers, depending on how precise you have to be. Um, and, you know, certainly for, for us up here in Canada, um, it can be really tough to find a base station, um, you know, that even a monument that that's close to you that you can uh, kind of start your survey from. And so um, the PPP... Um, I guess algorithms really, um, you know, began from that need to to be able to work in remote areas um, over long distances. And so originally it was a very slow process where you'd have to collect a stationary data set for, you know, 12 or 24 hours, and then you'd have to process that, you know, entire data set in order to get, you know, a a position accuracy of, of, you know, a few centimeters um, and so we call that basically the convergence time. So that's the time it takes for um, your your solution to reach kind of that centimeter uh, level accuracy or whatever accuracy you're, you're you're going for, whether it's ten centimeters or twenty centimeters. Um, so basically, this convergence time is is really kind of the driving factor of um, where you know the research and industry has been trying to focus um, all their development time on trying to reduce that convergence time to um, be as small as possible. Um, And so kind of the the main way we we do that, like I said uh, before, um, the biggest priority or or the most important aspect is to have really precise knowledge of your satellite orbits as well as your satellite clocks. Um, So in order to have uh, centimeter level positioning, you need to know um, the position of your satellite orbits as well as the, the clocks to kind of centimeter um, centimeter level. So basically your, your end position is a direct, um, kind of directly correlated to how accurately you know um, the orbits and clocks. And then kind of in addition to that, the next biggest factor is um, your atmospheric effects. So as the signals kind of come down from the satellites through the atmosphere, they get distorted, um, delayed, and then this causes, um, you know, very large errors in in the end-user position. So typically, for example, we have the ionosphere, um, which is kind of the upper portion of the atmosphere, um, and this can, you know, cause position errors of 10 meters, 20 meters in some cases, depending where you're located on the Earth. Um, and so the way we, we correct for that is by using dual frequency receivers, um, so unlike the receivers that you have, you know, in your um, your phone or handheld um, GPS, um, which only observe on a single frequency, um, you know, to really unlock the accuracy of PPP, you need to have kind of a higher end receiver that's capable capable of observing on both um, single or sorry, both uh, L one and L two frequencies. And then in addition to that, we have other effects like um, Earth tides. Um, You know, we have to account for the effect that the planets have on the Earth's crust and how they um, expand and and converge. And uh, so we have to go through a lot of work to really take into uh, into account a lot of these um, effects that can be ignored in kind of traditional um, RTK surveying. So the advantage with RTK is, is that you know because you're so close to that um, reference station, both the reference and the rover are experiencing um, kind of the same effects, and so um, we can remove those effects by just differencing the observations. But with PPP, because we're so far away from any single base station, we have to model all of these errors very explicitly. And so any, any mismodeling basically goes directly into... Um, error in your position domain. And so um, because of all these these errors, like I said, it's not always – PPP isn't applicable to everyone. Um, So like I mentioned, uh, convergence time is really the the biggest limitation. And so PPP was – especially when it started to come into industry, the applications that really benefited from it were things like Um, you know, marine applications such as dredging or uh, mapping for oil and gas um, because, you know, they had a very open sky. Um, You know, the receivers were set up on on boats, which usually would, you know, spend, um, you know, hours or even days in some cases basically um, navigating to their work site. And so this whole time the receiver would be on logging data have lots of time to converge to the final accuracy. Um, where this kind of differences or difference is different for a surveyor, um, you know, typically a surveyor, you, you know, you get out of your truck, you you want to, you know, maybe have a sip of coffee, but you want to get to work right away. And so, this uh, convergence time is is kind of one of the biggest limiting factors of it. So, you know, we're not currently at a point where EPP is going to, you know, replace. RTK as, as a tool for um, surveyors, but there's certainly some applications that surveyors can benefit from it. And, you know, this is, um, you know, things like um, densifying a reference network. Um, so, you know, if you want to set up a, a very accurate point in the area that you're working on and, you know, there's no current monuments or base stations in that area, PPP can be really useful for um, establishing that um Identified network so that you can um, work in that area, kind of in traditional RTK or, or even, uh, you know, using a total station, um, and so that's kind of one of the the big benefits that
2: PPP I think has brought to to surveyors. So in a, in a way, it's kind of like a, a base station type arrangement that
3: people would use as a reference point for their other work. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I think right now. Um, like I said, the technology hasn't gotten to a point where, um, you know, like really with surveying, you know, like you, you mentioned, we always have to check, double-check our work, right? And so we need to, to be able to have independent solutions and checks on, on everything we do. Um, and so I think that's where, you know, RTK is great, especially if it's a short baseline. Um, you know, you can walk out, um, you know, take your measurements, um, dump your antenna and then reestablish that point in a matter of, you know, 30 seconds. Um, And so PPP isn't at that level yet. Um, You know, I think in the next five to ten years, um, as we get more constellations and more satellites, more frequencies available, we're going to see PPP um, kind of keep approaching that level um, of RTK. But... Currently, um, you know, I hate, there's still I hate to break in, but we're right,
2: at, we're right at time for our next break. So I want to follow up with this with you when we come back before we go into the next topic. So we'll, we'll be back in a couple of minutes and do
1: that. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
5: On call.org or call toll free 1 800 714 6993 today.
2: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off
4: with Lawyer
0: Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Quick stakes or go to quickstate.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today you're listening to america's web radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com thank you for listening yes we were rushing off to break uh,
2: Landon was still continuing to talk to us about, uh, PPP and its uses and, and densifying networks and base stations and that kind of thing. And I w- did want to follow up on that a bit. And then during the break, we chatted a little bit with Gavin about uses for PPP that, that he might want to talk about. So, Landon, I don't know how, how much we left out in that segment that we need, need to still cover, but, uh, or, or perhaps maybe you and Gavin uh, begin this conversation about the, the uses. Oh, oh, and one other thing really quickly, Gavin. I'll just throw this in here just for fun. Um, is this, this the kind of thing that uh, if our friends at Legato went ahead with, their, with what they're doing, would it have any impact on this kind of thing?
4: Uh, it, 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 it could. Um, it depends. You know, that, that, that plan is fluid. Uh, the, we won't go into it deep, but the upper band was sort of given up, and the lower, the lower band from the old plan... But uh, anything that could uh, affect uh, the GPS transmissions or our, our compromise our way to to, uh, to gather it, it's going to affect PPP the same way it would affect almost anything, any other applications. So, right, it's uh, it, we still got to we still got to be vigilant about this one.
2: Right, and thanks for that, because for those who think, say I never talk about the Legato issue, I just want to make sure we talked about it a little bit today. So. <laughs> We, we have done that. So, uh, Landon, if you want to continue on, and then maybe you and Gavin had a uh, conversation
3: about this, the whole concept of, of different uses for PPP. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kurt. Um, so, yeah, I guess I kind of talked more about the uh, kind of theoretical or background of PPP. Um, so maybe I'll kind of take this chance to talk um, about how kind of hemisphere is, is approaching this. Um Yeah, so Hemisphere launched its uh, ATLAS service a few years ago, and basically ATLAS is is Hemisphere's uh, precise point positioning service. And so we basically broadcast these corrections, you know, again, these orbit and clock corrections um, over L-band or geostationary satellite, as well as uh, Internet communication protocol. And so basically this gives our users um, access to these corrections uh, in real time, um, you know, which is basically what allowed uh, um, you know Joe to, to go down um, to, to Ecuador and uh, perform that, that survey. Um, and so, so Atlas, like I said, uh, or as Gavin mentioned, there's a few kind of competing services um, in the industry right now. Um, you know, and Atlas is is um, you know very competitive with a lot of those, and uh, you know we offer a variety of accuracy levels from the meter level. Um, down to to kind of sub-decimeter um, performance. And then in addition to this, we have kind of some special applications. Um, so we integrate Atlas into our RTK um, engine so that if you're running RTK and you lose um, access to your base station or reference network correction service, then Atlas can kind of fill in or help bridge um, some of that um, outage period so that you don't lose, um, you know, your full, uh, RTK solution during that time. Um, and, and then we also have, uh, uh, two other kind of interesting applications that I think kind of make Atlas or at least Hemisphere, um, unique. And, and this is something we call Baselink. Um, so basically what Baselink is, it's a self-surveying, uh, reference station. Um, so as we mentioned before, um, you know, if you're working in a really remote area where, where you don't have access to a reference network, users can can use this feature to basically set up um, a base station, and as soon as it converges to the accuracy that you configure, it'll start broadcasting on um, RTCM um, or or any other of uh, Hemisphere's proprietary correction formats. And so, this is kind of a great way, you know, it simplifies the whole process of densifying this network and getting you know surveyors up and running um, as fast as possible. Um, so that's kind of, I think, a neat, uh, a neat application that kind of makes, um, you know, Hemisphere's Atlas service uh, a little unique from some of our competitors. So, uh, uh,
4: Kurt, um, as Landon mentioned about, um, you know, setting control to do other survey work. Well, the interesting thing about PPP is, uh, as Dr. Drew Smith says, the center of the earth is the only monument that can't get bulldozed. <laughs> so this, there's a lot of education about Earth-centered, Earth-fixed. And, uh, Drew, we're going to get him on the radio more more times before 2022. In 2022, when the NGS goes closer to the um, ITRF or the IGS, um, going to that global framework, the PPP gives you a value relative to the Earth-centered, Earth-fixed, the, the center of the Earth as defined by that, the, the you know, in those ellipsoids so the nice thing is is that you're getting instant geodesy well after the convergence time and those are shrinking and that's something that's going to become really key in the uh, post-2022 world surveyors we didn't used to have to think about geodesy when it was just relative lot staking but now, as soon as we use GNSS we have to take geodesy into account and why we use PPP a lot in Washington State, where we've got a lot of velocity, is we get that instantaneous geodesy with it. So that's one advantage that I, I really like about it. My RTN network, we monitor the velocities on the stations
3: using PPP. So, yeah, I, I think I think that kind of brings up an interesting point to um, like kind of this bringing kind of geodesy into surveying it. It uh, you know we always have to be careful about what reference range you're working in, um, and that's always a challenge. Um, you know that we see both with customers and even for our end when you're you're trying to determine kind of a truth um, a value um, that you can use for comparison. Um, you know it can be really tough, right? Because a lot of people are familiar with um, you know different reference systems or reference frames, whether it's nat 83 um, and then we also have all these different ITRF versions as well. And so all of a sudden, these differences that, you know, kind of disappear when you're running short baseline RTK, all of a sudden become one of the most important factors um, for PPP users. And, you know, I think this is something that, you know, it, it, it really does take a lot of kind of education and, uh, um, you know, an extra caution um, for when people are working with these services um, to make sure that all the reference trains are, are uh, you know, matching up and, and bang on.
2: Well, I know one of the things, of course, you've talked about the, the Atlas program, and, and Joe, as a as a field applications engineer, I'm going to assume that means that you're maybe working more directly with some of your, your clients across wherever they may be. And, and I'm not sure about how your structure works in terms of if you have people located in a lot of different places or if you're more centralized, and you can talk to us about that. But I was just curious how... How uh, does that interface work as you're working with with clients and utilizing the system?
6: Uh, Yeah, it's actually very user-friendly. When we got down to the uh, the site there with the sundial, I uh, turned our unit on and then we went over and kind of listened to the presentation that they have set up there. and then by the time that was done, uh, it was converged. So our, our convergence time to 10 centimeters is about 20 minutes. Um, so by that time, it was it was converged, and we were able to you know take the shots and collect the data. But um, yeah, it's it's very very user friendly. I mean, it pretty much you know does it does it on its own. So. Um, so was that a, when you were doing that work uh,
2: there at the equator? Was all of that observation done really, really quickly, or did you have to come back, or did you choose to to make uh, maybe observations at different times? Or I, I don't know enough about how the system works to know if if you were interested in gathering more data uh, for uh, certainty or or how
6: that worked.
5: Um.
6: No, I mean we we just set it up and, and took. Uh, Quite a few observations uh, just to try to verify, you know, if the actual line on the ground that they had set was was accurate. Um, And like Gavin said, with the, you know, the shifting, uh, it was about probably 10 centimeters off of the line. Um, But, you know, like he said, that was set probably 11 years ago or so, but... Oh, I was going to say if,
2: um, if it was over uh, 250 years, or actually 350 years, I guess, uh, that, that would be really, really close. Not to say it isn't close anyway, but so um, in how much information were you all able to, to gather or did you choose to gather about the line that was there and how it was placed? Did you have conversations with people there on the ground
6: about that? um i mean we collected uh, a couple static logs uh that, that gavin post-processed to verify uh the accuracy um, but there wasn't really anyone there to to verify you know with the, the other monument that was set but well, when, the, when, the, um, when some of the team
4: visited the, the IGM or, you know, the federal agency there towards the end of the trip, I think, Joe, you had already gone home, uh, they talked to them about that and uh, noted it was 2006, and then um, John Hamilton was able to look at velocity data on a, um, a nearby course station. The Ecuador does have a course network. Um, you have to pay for the data, <laughs> you know, and they want cash. At the IGM, you have to show up and pay cash. But the, um, they don't have, like, an opus or anything, but the the data is available. I was able to post-process against it. But looking at the velocity on the nearest cores, it really correlated with the 2006, how much um, Joe, Joe's observations were um, with the hemisphere. Were, uh, you know, you showed a precision range of about 8 centimeters, and that's about exactly how far off the line. Um, and the velocity, so it, I, I kind of figured through post processing that your results were well within a five centimeter uh, range. So,
2: well, that's that's pretty amazing. I, I'm, in terms of those observations, or, or in use of this altogether, and we only got about a minute before the break, so we can talk about this uh, when we come back. But but I am curious about that. You were talking about. Um, what conditions might possibly have an impact on on the use of the system, um, and whether or not that's something common or uncommon or or whatever the case may be. So, uh, and you can't cover that in in forty seconds, <laughs> obviously. So, um, but I don't know if anybody had a quick comment about it. We could do that in in the next thirty seconds or so, and then we cover
3: it a little more uh, broadly when we come back. Yeah, I mean, I think there certainly are some, some additional limitations uh, to PPP compared to RTK, especially when you're working in, uh, you know, kind of canopy-type environments. Um, but, you know, that's really one of our main uh, areas that we focus on. And um, just because we know surveyors, you know, they go everywhere, right? So, um, you know, that, that always has to be a key,
2: key factor. Sure. Well, that would be a good thing for us to pick up on when we come back and then uh, finalize anything else we want to share. So let's go to the last break. We'll be right back.
1: With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
5: It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think, next year, you can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember, Peace e and Center is where patient care counts. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join
0: us on the Doctors' Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for Quickstakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com Thank you for listening.
2: Uh, It's it's funny, isn't it, guys, how... uh, our off-air conversations during the commercial breaks have to be interrupted by the show itself, so we have to get back on our topic. Right. So, anyway, as we were chatting there during the break, Gavin, you were talking about the Atlas being the uh, a subscription service, and and maybe um, uh, Landon or Joe want to talk about that, what the coverage is, and and links to the satellite, and and uh, if there's a gap in service, what happens, and that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, um, sure. So I, I can discuss that a little bit. Um, yeah, so Atlas basically it's a subscription-based service. Um, so you know you can you can buy subscriptions for for various lengths of time, as well as the different accuracy levels. Um, and so basically, we provide um, you know the corrections over either these geostationary satellites um, or over uh, internet-based services. Um, so for the geostationary satellites, one of the um, challenges is if, you know, you're working in very high latitude um, areas or if you're working in areas that, you know, have significant blockages in the southern portion of the sky, uh, if you're working in northern hemisphere, sorry, um, you know, then we, we get these situations where we can lose the corrections, you know, maybe for 30 seconds, uh, a minute at a time. And so that's one of the areas that, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to tune up um, and improve so that surveyors or users can can kind of coast through these periods. Um, And so basically what we've seen is, you know, even if you lose the outage for, or if you lose the correction service for 30 seconds to a minute, um, you know, you won't see any degradation in in accuracy at all. Um, You know, it's really only after you get into the, you know, kind of two-minute range or even closer to five minutes, depending on what your accuracy requirements are, then you'll start to notice a bit of a, a degradation um, but you know that's always reflected by the standard deviation um, of the solution that we provide to, to our users. So the the coverage when when
2: uh, Gavin was talking earlier about uh, kind of losing a lock, if that's the right terminology, is that yeah. are are the satellites set up such that there's pretty much availability to a satellite at pretty much any time, all uh, everywhere or
3: how, how does that work? Yeah, so the satellites are basically um, spread out um, over the equator. Um, so if you're, in terms of the longitude, there's really no, um, you know, uh, missing coverage area. Um, so, you know, wherever you are, there's, you know, you're, you're certain to see at least one, and in some cases two satellites. Um now, the, where the limitation does, you can start to see it in latitude. So, if you're working very um, far north or south of the equator, um, you know here we're talking, um, you know, latitudes of you know seventy degrees plus or minus. Um, you know, that's when you start to see, or you can start to have some issues in terms of the satellite uh, visibility, right? Because it's going to be quite low um, on the horizon. And so if you have, you know, mountains or, or buildings, then in some cases you can get a uh, blockage. Um, now, that being said, that's kind of one of the reasons why we offer the Internet-based service. Um, so, you know, anywhere you can get um, satellite Internet, um, then you could also stream the correction service, um, you know, via that, that route. Um, and, you know, that's fully supported in, in hemisphere receivers. Um, So that's kind of one of the options that our users have to kind of supplement the coverage of the uh, geostationary satellites when they're working in, you know, very uh, high-latitude locations.
2: And so in terms of that worldwide coverage, is there a lot of competition in that service? I mean, it seems like it's a pretty expensive thing to establish.
3: Yeah, um, there's a few different uh, providers, um, you know, that you can use for, for the satellite communication. Um, you know, and, and so um, it, it is quite expensive, and so this is kind of one of the, the areas that Hemisphere is really focused on is trying to um, compress that orbit and clock data um, so that it, it is um, as small as possible um, so that when we're broadcasting it over these links, Um, you know, basically they charge you for for bandwidth, right? So, um, you know, the the more data you have to send, the more expensive it is for us, and obviously we have to pass that on to end users. So we've spent a lot of time trying to ensure that the correction data is as compressed as possible, and that kind of allows us to, um, you know, basically minimize the cost both to us and then pass that on to the end user. Um, So that's, you know, really an important area of, uh, of research as well as uh, development from our perspective.
2: Sure. Well, and, and talking about end users, uh, I mean, if you think about all the surveyors in the world, there really aren't that many of us, if you sit down and think about it. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm assuming there's a much broader client base than just us.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, a lot of our users um, you know, come from um, machine control, things like uh, automated farming, um, as well as the the marine industry. Um you know, the, like I said, the, the the applications are are pretty wide reaching, um, and so you know we we basically provide the same service across all of these different industries. Um, you know, which kind of allows us to uh, um, you know allows surveyors who might not be the biggest market to also benefit from this technology. I see. Well,
2: that's th- that's really good information. Thanks for sharing all of that. And 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 Joe now, uh, Gavin is determined to get out of you some anecdotal uh, experiences you had on your trip. And, and I keep thinking he wants you to say something that uh, uh, about your our, your quirky surveying friends. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying you need to do that. But uh, anything you want to share about the trip itself? I, I know you went down to do the work, but uh, did uh, Gavin mention something about eating wild boar or something? Is that what, is that what you said, Gavin?
4: Well, uh, I'll let Joe talk about that. I, I learned <laughs> okay, <live> vicariously <laughs> through you guys that I actually got to go. But uh, Joe, uh, any cool anecdotes and any uh, interesting dishes that uh, the group shared?
6: I don't think I ended up getting to eat that one, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> no, I, it was it was a great trip. I mean, I feel blessed to be able to go down there. And, uh, it was a really good group of guys, and and uh, you know. We had a good tour of the hacienda and, and going to the site and you know, I learned a lot about, you know everything that went down back there when they when they were doing the survey, uh the original one back in the day. So it was it was a great time. Uh you know, I don't have any crazy stories. I wasn't there the whole time with all those guys, so I'm sure they did a lot more one of the, stuff. One of the
2: yeah. things that intrigued me when I was talking to the other guys a couple of weeks ago was was the fact that the, some of the facilities that that were there, uh, maybe even the hotel you stayed in, were there when the first group was
6: there. Um, yeah, the the hotel that we visited uh, is the one that the the original surveyors stayed at, uh, and it had the the old buildings and churches, and it, it was. It was pretty cool to see all the the history that was still standing there. Yeah, that's just pretty astonishing.
2: Well, in our last five minutes or so, I don't know, Gavin or or Joe or Landon, either one, this is pretty cool where we are in the world, but everybody thinks ahead. So what are your perspectives on on the future in this kind of
4: data sharing? I mean, uh, Landon, Joe, what... You know, I got my own ideas of where PPP is going, and I'm pretty well buying into PPP for a lot of purposes. Uh, but where do you think it might go? What what uh, what? What do you think the next big aha moment's going to be in the world of PPP?
3: Um, yeah, so I think, like from my perspective, um, like I mentioned kind of briefly earlier, um, you know, as we get more satellites, more constellations, more signals, it just allows us to do more and more. Um, you know, with with the technology. And, uh, you know, I think over time we're going to kind of see this merging with, with RTK, um, kind of RTK network ideas. Um, you know, I think next five, ten years we're really going to see this get pushed towards, you know, centimeter accurate positioning, um, you know, virtually instantly. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of differs from the network RTK model a little bit where, you know, users still kind of have these, um, I guess patches or regions where they're getting this type of behavior. You know, where you just walk up, you know, punch in a few numbers on your uh, on your receiver, and then you know you have centimeter level accuracy. But I think in you know in the next decade, you know, this is going to be kind of a global type service that you know, no matter where you are, um, you don't need to know. You know, one agency is, has a service here, one has a service here. It's just going to be a you know kind of a seamless. Uh, kind of positioning behavior that, um, you know, I think it's going to be really amazing to see. So when that
2: occurs, will you still have the need for the, the, the processing type work that you guys are doing now, or will people just get those positions instantaneously without a service?
3: So uh, it'll still be, um, you know, these, I don't know if you want to call it third party, you know, I, I don't think we'll see this with, uh, you know, kind of the core, you know, GPS constellation or, or a service that's being offered, you know, by by uh, GPS specifically, I think you'll still have these, uh, um, you know, third-party or, or industry solutions. Um, but I think, like, like I said, the main difference is they're going to be much more seamless and much more global. Um, and we're going to continue to see that convergence time just get smaller and smaller and smaller until it's, you know, virtually, you know, instant um, and so, you know, hopefully over time, um, like I said, we, we focus on real-time right now, and I think that's going to become more and more common. Um, and, and, yeah, so I'm I not, not say that post-processing will disappear altogether, but, you know, these real-time services that Hemisphere and, and others offer, I think that's really going to be the uh, the wave of the future.
2: So your, your actual uh, user base, it would be, it would lead one to believe the actual user base would expand because it makes it available to more people in a, for lack of a better term, an easier way.
3: Yeah, I think it's partly kind of like, you know, this whole idea with cell phones. And, you know, th- 30 years ago, we never would have envisioned that you need to have, uh, you know, gigabytes of space and, uh, you know, these instant fast uh, communication rates. Um, and I think positioning is going to be somewhat similar to that where we really don't even know what applications are going to be possible or what applications might even exist until we kind of get to that level of centimeter accuracy nearly instantly. And, you know, I think once we get we get there, we're going to see, you know, just all these applications explode um, because it's, like I said, once you kind of get that seamless um, kind of infrastructure type of um, service, it, it allows people to do a lot with it. So Yeah,
2: it's kind of like the, uh, I guess, we don't know what we're going to want till we want it right <laughs> or we, yeah. we we see that there's an availability so yeah that that certainly makes a lot of sense well we're 45 seconds or so from from the end of the show so i want to make sure that i thank you guys for being with me today it's been great to have you on the show and to hear this this side of the story so to speak to follow up from where we are before so uh thanks to you gavin for for thinking about doing this so that we had the. The kind of the, the personal side when guys are out there doing their thing, and and then we're hearing this side of it in terms of of uh, data gathering and where things are in the world and and looking forward. So thanks so much to all of you for being with me today. I appreciate it. And again, thank, Gavin, thanks for putting us together.
4: All right, thanks, gentlemen.
3: Thanks, thank you, guys. That's fun.
4: Thank you
0: very much. Take care.